0: Welcome to our Holden Village podcast. For over 50 years now, Holden Village has traveled a rich history of faith that has transformed a copper mining town into a vibrant place of education, programming, and worship. Holden has sought to welcome all who seek contemplation and community in the remote wilderness of the beautiful Cascade Mountains. We continue to invite people of all ages to come alongside our rhythms, which inspire and equip travelers for a sustainable life of faith outside the village. And we continue to listen and reflect on our story and history and seek to discover our place in God's creative mission in our world. Our podcasts are a way of sharing our conversations with our teaching faculty around reformation, the reforming of our relationships with the earth, with each other, and with a divine. Let's tune in and join the conversation. So
1: my name is Katie Sherrard, and I live in uh, Tucson, Arizona, and I got to Holden a few days ago, but well, five days ago or so, uh, to teach a class on um, borders, resistance, and sanctuary. I came to, well, I guess be familiar with this topic just um, due to a long history of work and study there. Um, I got to El Paso and Ciudad Juarez in Texas and Chihuahua when I was about 20, 20 or 21 years old in 2003. And I arrived there to, um, as a college student to just like look at how uh, issues of injustice and unequal access were playing out in the country of which I was a citizen rather than studying abroad in a more traditional context. I wanted to kind of interrogate my own country. Um, and I actually pretty much hated the border the entire time I was there because it's a very difficult place in a way because it really calls upon you to name and confront your own privilege and then have to live with that anyway because it's not like just by being there I'm going to all of a sudden like lose my nationality or lose my whiteness or lose my formal education. Um, And so I just had to wrestle with those questions in a very real way and on a daily basis and it wasn't a particularly comfortable process. But I think, like, asking those questions also made me feel, like, deeply engaged and deeply alive. And there was something also about the border that, for all of the difficulties that it presented, um, also inspired a lot of hope in me, just because of the kind of levels of collaboration and commingling that existed that doesn't get quite as widely reported on as the hopelessness. Um, and so I stayed um, right after I graduated from college. I returned to the border to work at a a shelter for undocumented immigrants in El Paso who just made it across the the boundary. And they got to that shelter in a whole lot of different ways. Sometimes the border patrol would drop them off and sometimes they would, you know, just kind of find it through word of mouth. And um, sometimes local churches would bring them there. And that was a really powerful and impactful way for me to live because it reminded me of how um, to live justly and in solidarity um, with neighbors who looked nothing like me and who had much much different backgrounds than than I did. And then kind of continued that work, uh, kept uh, kept on with study through graduate school in Tucson, Arizona, and um, then taught college for about six years, uh, focused on borders and migration issues, so got a very good sense of how things were playing out theoretically and kind of arguments for and against like open borders or against particular policy reforms. But after having been there for a certain number of years, I mean, I guess I left for a lot of different reasons, but uh one was also just that I felt like I was increasingly teaching on things that existed for me largely in the abstract and less so in the concrete and so from that I got to my current position which is at um it's a place called the Kino Border Initiative which um does educational programs and advocacy and also direct humanitarian aid to people who have just been deported and or who are about to cross so there's a lot of people who um Mexicans who get deported uh after they've either you know just attempted to cross the desert and it hasn't worked out or after they've been living for years, uh, decades even, uh, in various parts of the U.S. And so we see them from all over, a lot from, of course, Tucson and Phoenix area, uh, a lot from Salt Lake City and Las Vegas. Um, There's been a lot, actually, recently from uh, Minneapolis, um, and then also uh, Salem, Oregon, and then also this area. There's a lot who um, have been living in um, Yakima and Spokane. And so they will just have been picked up by ICE and then uh, sent to the the Commodore. So this week in class, uh, we've just kind of been covering some of what the borderlands look like. Like, what are the various steps in, like, people's journeys? Like, why are they coming north to begin with? What are they fleeing? How do people cross the line, and what encounters do they have once they cross? Like, who, who's guiding them? Uh, what happens if they get picked up by Border Patrol? What happens if they don't? How many do? How many don't? What are detention center conditions like? What happens when people get deported? What should our response be? Uh, and then we'll be moving also into um, just kind of the, the response by people with a lot of different commitments and passions and courage. And, yeah, it's a very diverse and very engaged group. Um, and the ideas that people have come up with about how we might respond um, as, as people of faith and as people who are kind of in this in Holden Village at this moment in time uh, has been really inspiring to me. The first time I heard of Holden Village was when I was young and in El Paso, 2022 or so. Uh, And there was someone who came through on the Border Servant Corps, which is, I believe, run through a Lutheran church out of Las Cruces, New Mexico. I was giving her a tour of Annunciation House where I was working. Uh, And she mentioned to me that she'd just come from Holden Village, where she'd spent a formative year as a 21-year-old or so. And I, yeah, filed it away. And then years later, I encountered it again when I was living in Guatemala, actually. And then someone that I was doing accompaniment with had also just spent uh, a year here. So I, again, put it on my bucket list to return to. Um, And I came up here on a spring break in March of... must have been 2013 or 14. Um, Spent 10 days or so. uh, And then did a short talk while I was here on border issues. um, And then always had in mind... uh, to come back for a summer and work on the teaching faculty. That's why I'm here now. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of have this idea that Mexico is the place where a lot of people flee from and there's a lot of poverty and violence there, and that's certainly true. There's definitely, you know, the minimum wage in Mexico is like less than $5 a day, Um, and the gangs are very prevalent in, you know, a lot of the border states and um, and in a few particular states like Guerrero and Oaxaca. Um, But by and large, it's a, a... it's a much wealthier country than the Central American countries and Mexico and the U S have collaborated to kind of, uh, stop migration on the Mexican Southern border. Um, and so there's a lot of checkpoints that have developed in Mexico to keep Central Americans out in tandem with the U S government. So to be Central American in Mexico is kind of similar to being an undocumented immigrant in the U S. Um, and so in that way to like give hospitality to Central Americans in Mexico is kind of like providing sanctuary, but, um, It's different for me just because I'm not a Mexican citizen. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not particularly... I mean, I show up there, I suppose, but it's not my conscious decision to uh, challenge the laws of of Mexico, although I suppose in a way that's what we're doing. There's a variety of ways that people will cross into the U.S. if they don't have papers. Um, And people will often say, like, well, why don't they come legally? Um, And one, it's just a, a very costly process and people don't have access to that kind of money. And two... Um, we're currently processing the applications for um, like family members of U.S. citizen and citizens and residents from like 1995. Uh, so the the wait is about 23 years um, if if current trends continue, which isn't particularly reasonable for most people. Um, and so that's why people cross without authorization is because there's no real legal avenues. Um, like not only if you could only if if you could pay the fees and if you had that amount of time to wait. Um, that would essentially be your only way in legally or to be, uh, you know, like a Carlos Slim or to be another very wealthy person in Mexico who could invest in the U.S. or uh, pay for college education there or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, people will either jump over the wall, which is in all of the major urban areas along the borders, like San Diego or El Paso or even Nogales, Nogales, where I work. There's a big wall. Uh, so they'll jump over that and it's less dangerous, uh, but also there's a higher risk of getting caught. Um, they'll kind of be smuggled through in cars. Um, that's also less dangerous in certain ways. Um, but then if you get caught, there's usually a stiffer legal penalty. Um, and it's also, yeah, much more, much more expensive. Um, and the most common way is to walk through the desert. So to avoid the check, to avoid the wall, to avoid the checkpoints, because the walls taper off in rural areas. Um, and that's just a really difficult and arduous journey because it's really remote, really hot right now, not a lot of, water if any uh a high likelihood of uh getting lost or left behind by your group so if you you know if you're for instance a woman or if you're older or if you get blisters if you twist your ankle the group generally won't wait for you um and so you then have to make your way alone and yeah it's uh it's not that much more remote than Holden is like it's a little bit less so but I mean it's it's fairly comparable in a lot of ways to how far out you are from, you know, a town or another uh, habitation. Um, so it's been estimated that about 7,000 people have died in the U.S.-Mexico border uh, since 1994 when the walls started going up. So, yeah, then if you are caught by border patrol, um, you're often sent to a detention to serve out your sentence. Sometimes you're deported back with a criminal charge, but uh, often if you have any kind of previous record in the U.S., then you'll have to serve a detention sentence. Um, and most of those are in for-profit detention facilities. About 60, 62%, I think, of immigration detention is privately owned. Um, and it costs taxpayers uh, about $150 per person per day to house people in a private detention facility versus 98 in a publicly, publicly owned one uh, and about $10 or so for alternatives to detention, which would be like ankle monitors or community supervision to make sure that people go to their court dates. And then as far as deportation, um, you know, it's happening to people who, you know, both have just crossed the desert, people who have been in the U.S. for a long time. So, you know, family separation was in the news a lot, like last month and two months ago, when people who arrived to the border were getting separated from their families. And that was certainly like an awful, awful thing. Um, but it, it's been happening for a really long time, just in different ways where, you know, there's a lot of family members, or a lot of families who live in the U.S. and if one person is undocumented then, and they get deported, then their citizen children will remain in the U.S., um, or their non-citizen children or whatever, but then the families are separated in that way, too, and there's no particularly easy way to reunify them, except for having the kids come and join the parent in Mexico, and very often the reason they left Mexico or Central America was because of poverty and violence and uh, not great access to education, and so it's a very difficult decision for parents to make, like whether it's better to have families together in a country that's often very difficult to live in or uh, if they should be separate and like allow their kids to kind of continue to have access to more stability and more safety and better education in the u.s
0: thanks for joining us for another holden village podcast be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village we hope you will make a pilgrimage to holden blessings and peace to you